Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much for giving me the chance to return to Edinburgh and the honour of talking in the college. I want to begin by introducing to the Medico della Peste, or the Plague Doctor from the early modern period. This is a timeless image which also has parallels in more recent epidemics. The Plague Doctor is dressed in this fashion because this reflects contemporary views of how to protect yourself against plague. So the leather coat, the lenses over the eyes, the leather gloves all covering to his face inhibit the absorption and the, of the infected and corrupt air, which at the same time was seen as being both the substance and also the method of transmitting disease. His famous beak, which you may know, contained herbs which modified the air he breathed in through his nostrils. But from a general image of the, 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 the plague doctor, let me turn to a very specific plague doctor in Florence who would have needed to wear this garb in the autumn of 1630 during the epidemic I wish to discuss tonight. His name was Dr. Niccolò Giovagnoli, and he worked in the appalling conditions of the pest house or lazzaretto of Messa Bonifazio. His, later, his letter dates the 12th of September, 1630, and he recounts his experience as follows. I came to the lazzaretto or pest house of Messa Bonifazio on the 12th of September. I found between today and yesterday to be sick from these pestilential fevers, many people, accompanied either by tumours in the ducts or little postules. And every day I find more people sick in bed. I have at present four serving women who are healthy. I have seven serving men who are healthy up until now. But I've said many times to the members of the health board who come here to check to see if we're alive or dead, that we need two more servants for the dead by day and four by night. We need grave diggers since neither all are dead or sick themselves. I also have two priests sick in bed and the others feel well, ill. In fact, I don't feel very well myself. For two evenings, I've had a fever with yawning and shivering and I hope, pleasing to God, that these fevers are not the beginning of the contagious sickness. You'll be pleased to know that Giovanni did actually survive and we'll encounter him later on. But this passage, I think, introduces us not just to the plague doctor, but two of the topics I want to consider tonight. One is the pest house, or lazzaretto, for the sick, and the health board, which coordinated the campaign against plague. And indeed, it's the, the relationship between quarantine and isolation, medical treatment and personnel, and government policy and public health are, of course, themes which are essential in the study of any epidemic from the Justinian plague to the present day. The relevance of studying plague hardly needs emphasis. It remains a topic of endure fascination for academics and the public life, as recognised by regular programmes on the radio and television and the stream of books which continue to be published. Classics like Camus' La Peste or The Promessi Sposi by Manzoni or Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year are still in print and studied as textbooks 
by, at both school and university. Indeed, it's the very liveliness of this type of narrative which continues to fascinate, even if portrayed in fictional terms. And recent plague studies have also sought to recreate the actual experience of those who lived through epidemics, which I want to turn to in the second half of this talk. More broadly, plague has remained relevant through the centuries as each age faces the challenge of new epidemic diseases, from cholera to tuberculosis to AIDS, SARS, avian flu and Ebola. For plague remains a paradigm against reactions to other epidemics have been judged. Plague is often seen as providing a template for public health, and some of the main strategies developed in the medieval and early modern periods are seen as models for later health policies. Never more so than in the context of Italy, which saw not just the birth of the Renaissance, but also the precocious development of public health strategies to cope with plague. Thus, the main themes which will be explored here in relation to early modern Europe were also central to strategies adopted in more recent epidemics and can be summarised under three headings, inspection, disinfection, and quarantine and isolation. These policies will be well known to those familiar with reactions across the world to plague in the late 19th and early 20th century, from Hong Kong to the Indian subcontinent, South Africa, San Francisco, and Sydney. In addition to examining the developing policies of the health board within the context of the last epidemic of plague to hit Florence in 1630-1, I also want to explore how ordinary men and women uh, reacted to the plague through analysis of people put on trial. And these records provide a much more nuanced and animated and less passive view of the poorer sort than presented by official accounts. Plague... Pestilence, pest, is the centre of my lecture tonight. I'll be concentrating on one event in Florence in 1630-1. to In the process, I want to draw parallels to similar events in other periods and parts of the world to um, emphasise the continuity and parallels between the more distant and the nearer past within a global context. First, I'm dealing with the second plague epidemic as opposed to the first the so-called Justinian plague of 541 to CE, and the third pandemic which began in China and Hong Kong in the mid to late 19th century. It's the second pandemic then which we're concerned with today. It began with the Black Death in 1347, and with a few exceptions was pretty much over by the middle of the 17th century, marked perhaps by the most famous epidemic uh, um, outbreak of plague in London in 1665. It's believed that the Black Death originated in China, was brought to the Middle East and Western Europe by commerce along the Silk Road via Constantinople, which it reached by mid-1347, reaching its maximum mortality in November and December. From there, 12 galleys from Genoa left for home, arriving in Messina, southern Italy, at the end of 13, September 1347. And then, over the following few years, the plague spread over the whole of Europe. It's been estimated that something like 20 million people died during the Black Death, out of a total population of over 80 million, including Russia. After the Black Death of 1347-52, to 52, plague became endemic in Europe and reoccurred more or less frequently over the following 300 years, 
carried from place to place by sea and land transport. Now, the third plague pandemic of 1894 to 1950 makes an interesting comparison because it too remained endemic for a period of a number of years. Its origins are again attributed to China, especially the Himalayan borderland with India in about 1855, from where it moved east by the mid-1890s to South China and Hong Kong. Hong Kong lost roughly 24,000 people. By 1896, it had broken out in Singapore and Bombay, carried there by British steamships. By 1899, it arrived in Europe and eventually to Central and Southern America and Sydney in 1900. The pattern of mortality, however, was somewhat lower, was, was very different from that of the second pandemic. First, overall, it was some, somewhat lower. Between 15 to 20 million people died. Secondly, the whole of Europe lost only 7,000 people, while North America's plague deaths around it amounted to about 500, mostly in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New Orleans. In contrast, the real tragedy struck in India, and particularly Bombay. Overall, 12 million Indians died, compared with 13, um, in, 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 in uh, 12 million, sorry, 3 million Indians died, compared with 12 in the rest of the world. So these two pandemics had then very different geographical profiles. However, they were both global phenomena, shared similar origins, and both suffered massively mortality rates. And it's the global nature of plague which makes it such a fascinating basis for comparison with later, more contemporary epidemics. What changed between the second and third pandemic was the growth in the speed of transport with the introduction of railways and the steamship. In 1900, the plague epidemic which broke out in Glasgow has been attributed to the growth in the number of ships during the Boer War, which traveled between Britain and South Africa, where plague had broken out in March. This generated fear the epidemic would spread through these islands. So in Dublin, by September, the authorities instituted a rigorous medical inspection of all ships arriving from Glasgow. And reactions there and in Britain reflected the continued fear generated by the threat of plague. Indeed, we shouldn't forget that plague remains endemic in parts of the world today, and the velocity of its spread has multiplied exponentially with air travel and therefore the increased vulnerability of the world's population. From this consideration of the wider geographical and chronological context, I wish to turn to a specific study, which forms the basis of my book, which will be published in the coming July. And this is about Florence, and more, about Italy, and more specifically Florence, the cradle of the Renaissance and the center of Chianticha, the picture I shall be painting is very different from that portrayed in the numerous films and adverts of tourist boards. I'll examine Tuscany in relation to this major epidemic of 1629 to 33, and I'd argue that it's only by examining case studies that one can draw significant parallels between the past and the more recent presence. In this way, one can gain insights into motivations and reactions both at government and also more popular levels, and in the process see the surprising continuity of policy against epidemics across the centuries. Let's begin, though, with a short discussion of medical theory at the time, essential to grasp if we're to understand why governments did what they did. 
One of the most striking features about the history of disease in the late medieval and early modern periods is the extraordinary continuity of ideas concerning the cause and the nature of plague between the Black Death and the middle of the 17th century. Indeed, you could extrapolate that forward to the middle of the 19th century. The basic assumption that it was derived from the atmosphere and that it was formed by poisonous vapours or malaria, bad air, generated by corrupt matter such as stagnant water in bogs or the effluence of individuals living in close proximity. Then, as plague became more endemic following the Black Death, an integrated and sophisticated system was developed to combat plague, including the establishment of health boards, the banning of public assemblies, the prohibition of the sale of cloth, which was seen as the method plague travelled, and the burial of plague victims in special pits outside the city centre. But what formed the main characteristics of plague measures, in which later was imitated throughout the centuries, was the quarantine and isolation, of which there were three main levels. First of all, states established cordons sanitaires across their borders. Cities were isolated themselves from external contacts, and internal mechanisms involved isolation of individuals within institutions or within their houses. And these administrative and sanitary uh, measures were not simply confined to Italy, but many of them were imitated across the rest of Europe in the 17th, 18th, and indeed 19th centuries. So it's not just how systems function which interests me, but their effectiveness and the impact on the lives of those most closely involved, the men and women who staff these bureaucratic and medical systems, but all above all, the mass of the population who remained behind in cities and towns when they were besieged by plague. And it's this third dimension that I want to look at in more detail. Though let me just say a word about the isolation of states and cities, for it is their, to their success that is partly attributed the containment and the isolation and effective disappearance of plague from Western Europe, exemplified by the following couple of maps. So here you see the invasion of plague in Italy in 1629-31, which came as part of the third, uh, uh, Thirty Years' War. Troops invaded imperial troops to the north, and French troops to the northwest invaded Italy. Um, and as you can see, they brought plague with them, literally on their tailcoats. And then they, the, all, you can see how far it spread over those uh, couple of years from the, uh, through northern and then central Italy. If we look, however, uh, and if you, if you think, however, that it was concentrated essentially in the north of the peninsula, of course, the question arises, why? And historians have suggested it's because of the effectiveness of the cordon sanitaire of putting, the, um, of, of putting mounted soldiers across frontiers. So then you compare that with when plague came back um, in the 1650s, and you can see once again it was confined this time uh, almost uh, exclusively except a bit in Ligure to the southern part of Italy. So as I say, historians have suggested this is because of the success of the quarantine measures put into operation, although difficult to prove. So then let's turn to the impact of quarantine at the more localised and personal level and examine how the measures which made Italian public health so renowned actually functioned and the effect they had on individuals who lived through the epidemics. 
In late, in late July, the first cases of plague were in Tuscany were detected in Trespiano, which is just to the north of F Florence, a settlement of about 500 people on about five miles to the north of the city. Brought, they said, by a certain pollaiolo, or plague, uh, sorry, or chicken dealer, who'd come from the Bolognese. It was not long before the disease spread to Florence itself, and the epidemic gradually took over, and the worst period of mortality was in the late autumn, and then it gradually tailed off over the subsequent seven months. During the whole period in which plague was in the city, something like 12% of the resident population of 70,000 died, which seems a lot, but it was quite low compared with some other cities in the north, where up to 60% in Verona, for example, died in this period. The first reactions of the health board di Sanità to the disease in Trespiano was cautious, and that provoked a debate among the medical college about the nature of the disease and whether or not it was plague. Not everybody agreed that it was plague, and most of them simply attributed to what they called normal sicknesses linked to higher mortality among the poor, eating food and drinking, uh, drinking wine and water of poor quality. Reluctance to admit the presence of plague remains a common reaction to many epidemics in the past, and indeed in the, near, in the not too distant past. And it can be seen, for example, at the beginning of the plague epidemic in Bombay in May 1896, when the authorities were anxious to avoid panic and the disruption of commerce. The 1890s, as you probably know, are particularly significant for the history of plague because it was then that the laboratory revolution was undertaken by Alexandre Yessin, the French bacteriologist who discovered the identity of the bacillus forming bubonic plague. What Yessin discovered was that bubonic plague is essentially a disease of rats and other rodents. The cause of plague is the bacillus called Yersinia pestis, which spread from rat to rat by infected fleas, which are said to have fed on the blood of the infected host. Then he worked out that when the host died, the flea hopped off the, the, the rat in search of a new human and onto uh, of a new rat and then onto humans. However, after his discovery, even in the late 1890s, British India remained hostile to the idea and preferred traditional explanations of corrupt air and infected soil. Nevertheless, there were important developments in free, flea etymology in Australia, and particularly in Sydney, and a recognition of the vital role at that point of the link between rats and, hence, the vigorous policy adopted by the public health authorities for their eradication. So let's return to the 1630s. Clearly, this medical advice gave the authorities somebody and something to blame, the link between plague and the uh, poor. And from this flowed a series of measures. So insanitary conditions in the more squalid parts of the city was being seen as the cause of disease. Following policies adopted during recent epidemics in, of typhus, and the close association between disease and poverty, a survey was instituted of the poorest streets listing houses with inadequate beds and poor sanitation. 
and they decreed that the houses of the poor should be cleaned from the dirt and new mattresses were supplied. In fact, we have a surviving copy of this detailed survey which was initiated on the 10th of August, which was literally a day-by-day survey of stinky conditions. They were detailed a house-by-house investigation, as we can see by the... Sorry, it's going before... In, in the investigation of this, ta- this tower, the Canto alla Paglia. For those who know Florence, uh, the baptistry is immediately behind me, and the cathedral obviously behind that. Now, particular attention would have been paid to the building because the apartments were above a shop belonging to a butcher, an occupation which would have been seen as creating pollution through the opening of dead bodies. The tower was divided into four separate apartments, and I quote from the survey, each with a problem of its own. On the first floor of the said tower to the widow, Mona Lisa, a new straw mattress, climbing another staircase to Mona Elisabetta, Another mattress, Mona Francesco on the said floor, mend a cesspit. On the top pit, top floor, a mattress to Andrea the tailor and instruct the landlord of the said apartments to have carried away all the rubbish. So concern was expressed here, above all, that insanitary conditions would create and increase the corrupt vapours which were seen as creating plague. For as the contemporary historian Francesco Rondinelli puts it, filth is the mother of corruption. The health board was now provided with evidence of the link between corrupt air, insanitary conditions, poverty, and disease. And in this, they were backed up by medical opinion. Dr. Rigi, who was one of the advisors of the health board from the college, pushed the point further in his justification for the fact that his belief that it was plague. Quote, during the autumn, there entered into Florence a contagious sickness, but not the plague. It arose only from the poor and the needy. These ideas and actions will have a surprisingly familiar echo for historians of the third pandemic. In Hong Kong in May 1894, it was noticed that plague spread rapidly through the crowded streets of the poor and led to even more dramatic measures being adopted. While there was cleansing of infected dwellings and house-to-house inspections, the British authorities went even further by destroying about 350 houses and displacing about 2,000 Chinese. In Bombay, too, there was a concerted effort to disinfect insanitary slums, based on the assumption, as in Florence, that plague was based on generated by filth, leading to digging up of floors made of earth, destroying building, and even flushing three million gallons of carbonic acid and salt water every day through the sewage and the drainage systems. Nearer to home, when plague broke out in Glasgow in August to September 1990, um, measures familiar from other parts of the world were adopted, from, um, tracing, including tracing and quarantine contacts, the um, removal of the sick to hospitals, fumigation of houses, and the disinfection, uh, disinfection with chlorine powder. Fortunately, the outbreak was contained for there were only 36 cases and 16 deaths. So you can see that what I'm trying to point out is that a lot of these measures that were taken that we'll be looking at in a bit more detail in a moment were in fact paralleled in the 18th and the 19th centuries and during the, the third pandemic too, which was not so long ago. 
In Florence, if the sanitary survey with its provision of free mattresses and enforced repairs of wells and sewage would appear to present a more charitable policy, they shared a familiar topos from reactions to epidemics more generally, and that's the blaming of outgroups. So the health board took measures immediately against peggers, beggars, and the most vulnerably and easily coerced sections of society. All non-Florentine beggars were expelled from the city and local ones were housed in the recently established Beggar's Hospital. But I don't want to present too exaggerated a picture of social control and marginalisation of the poor. Because as we saw at the very beginning in the case of the Dr Giovagnoli, who ran, those people who ran the institutions were dedicated to their tasks. After all, they could have run away. And much of the actual inspection of houses and carrying the sick and dead was taken uh, was was carried out by the brothers of the fraternity of the misericordia um, who were responsible for disinfecting uh, houses and bedding after they'd taken some to the lazaretto and this this fraternity this confraternity or brotherhood is still has a is still working in florence today picking up not plague victims but accident victims of the autostrada they were also responsible for disinfecting houses and beddings after somebody had been taken to the Lazzaretto, as one can see in this scene uh, from Rome, the disinfection of possessions. So with this background in mind, I want to concentrate in the rest of this lecture on two main themes. First of all, the role of the Lazzaretto, and secondly, the impact of the plague regulation on the population and the survival strategies that they adopted through a crisis. What distinguished Italian isolation hospitals from many other parts of Europe was they were sca their scale. They were mostly large brick and stone structures, some of them converted monastic buildings, and sometimes they were actually built um, from, uh, specifically for the purpose. And so, for example, here is a vast uh, lazaretto which was, um, which was designed in Milan in the late 15th century, which was about 370 square metres. You can get a good idea of it from what it looked like before its demolition in 1882. Venice, perhaps, because of its position as an entrepot, also established lazaretti, this time in the lagoon. And so one of them, the Lazzaretto Vecchia, was for plague victims, and the Lazzaretto Nuovo was for people who'd recovered from plague. The, 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 um, in 1575, which was one of the worst epidemics in Venice, they requisitioned also a veritable armada of 3,000 boats moored off the island, and, um, which catered for between eight and 10,000 people. Reminding one of the policy adopted in Hong Kong in 1894, when a decommissioned man of war called the Hygeia was adopted as a floating lazaretto. So let's now return the time remains to Florence. A series of, of lazaretti were established around the city. The main one, which we will see, um, was established here. Uh, was established here at San Miniato, which is the um, um, for those people who know Florence will be surprised. This is one of the most beautiful Benedictine monasteries from this period, but was adopted as a lazaretto. And then to the north, this was a large villa that was taken over, the Villa Urshano, close by, as a quarantine centre for those people who got better, because not everybody died of plague. And then to the north of, um, I'm just going to skip this, to the north of Florence, 
there was what is now the European University, uh, the Badia Fiesolana near Fiesole, which once again is a large uh, monastic building, which was again taken over as a lazaretto. So we get a very good idea of the, as well, of the conditions um, in the lazaretti um, from the daily correspondence from the, doc, the, 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 the directors of these institutions. And they talk about the mounting number of dead and the problems created by nursing staff having to work in such an unhealthy uh, environment. As one director points out, the place is so infected that everybody, even though they're well, gets sick. Although the hospital of Messer Bonifazio, which was the first lazaretto I showed you, was, 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 the, um, was used initially, feared were expressed in September that it was actually too small. So they established um, a, this one, San Miniato al Monte. And despite the fact that San Miniato's capacity was many times greater, with over 720 beds, the increase in the number of admissions day by day, week by week, following its opening, led to considerable pressure on space. By early November, it was reported that five to six women were sleeping per bed. These then were very significant operations, very expensive to run, led to the employment of a large number of people. San Maniato alone employed about 100 members of staff. And the doctors who provide treatment also suffered from being among those exposed to infection, as the director of San Miniato reported on the 12th of October, 1630. The surgeon, Francesco Cortigiani, who fell ill yesterday evening, has a high fever. And Dr. Giovagnoli, we met earlier, remember, is also sick because of his very hard work yesterday. And it said he never rested last night and has a bit of a fever. Now, those who ran the Lazzaretti were evidently convinced of the efficacy of the treatment, which combined a series of medicines with scarification of the swollen parts of the body and the purging of those by fevers. How then do we express, then assess the contribution made by these enormous institutions to the campaign against plague over these months? Over the, over the period in which these, um, the, these institutions were, were running, they, um, and they were on an extremely significant scale, they treated or housed at least over 10,000 people over the course of the year. Contemporaries who recorded their reactions, chronicles, and correspondence regarded the role of the Lazzaretti as a great success. But it's perhaps questionable how far the people who actually worked there, or even the people who were sick, who were sent, sent there, who didn't have plague, would have agreed. One of the doctors employed by the health board, Dr. Rigi, for one, didn't seem to be very well disposed towards these institutions. For he remarked, everybody feared the Lazzaretto and burial there more than de death themselves. So in the last um, short section, I want to then look at the reactions of the popolo, the people who were often shut up in their houses during periods of the epidemic. While well, in Florence, there's little evidence of rioting in the response of inf in the enforcement of public health regulation. There is evidence of considerable resistance, as reflected in court cases. And although obviously this type of record is far from being unproblematic, they do demonstrate that those who lived through the plague were not a passive mass who accepted all regulations. After all, we are in Italy. Living in a city in which the health board had absolute power 
led to the infringement of numerous privileges and freedoms normally taken for granted. So these people were often simply seeking to adopt a series of strategies to survive, both financially and psychologically. So I want to give you a few examples of the, 500, of the 550 trial records which have survived for this period. First of all, let's look at the pattern of prosecution. Very broadly, the incidence of prosecution followed the level of mortality, the very highest in November to seven, gradually declining over the subsequent seven months. The second point remains that concerns the type of, um, of, 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 of prosecution. As you can see clearly from this slide, crimes associated with house, I can explain all these categories later if you want, and home were by far the largest categories. In other words, people breaking out of houses or breaking into houses. This then reflects the desire of individuals on the one hand to attempt to continue to follow a normal way of life and on the other to either protect or acquire possessions. Many prosecutions found in the streets represented attempts to get around regulations which disrupted normal activities. And here we can see an example of the trial, a short trial of Mona Antonia Di Giovanni, who was arrested on the 16th of November, 1630. The judge began by asking, what's your occupation? I weave, I sew, Your Honour. In fact, I do whatever I can to survive. What were you doing yesterday evening? I, I was arrested, Your Honour, yesterday evening on Piazza Strozzi because I was carrying two shirts to carry and sell because I didn't have anything to eat. Who else is in your family? I've got two children, one male and one female who's very small, and my husband who's a second-hand clothes dealer but now does nothing. So here you can see in this very brief extract the problems caused by families when specific economic activities were banned. The health board feared that corrupt vapours were held within second-hand clothes and hence they prohibited their sale. This obviously though in this case meant that the household head was deprived of his livelihood. The largest number of crimes were those associated with house and home. Most were people leaving their homes when there'd been sickness or death associated with plague. This could be seen as innocent as the widow, Sandra Di Matteo, who was arrested on the 23rd of, of January, quote, I left the house because I heard the sound of a clack clack of a hen. And when I returned inside, I was arrested and taken off to prison. Alternatively, it might involve hiding disease through not declaring somebody who died of the malcontagiosa. As in the example of the fishmonger, uh, Giovanni di Bru Bruno di Brunelli, who was arrested on the 4th of November. He had, according to the records, carried with the help of another man furtively at night the body of his grandson, who died of plague in Via delle Rote, to his own house in Via San Zanobi. Evidently, he explained that he hadn't made an official declaration so that those people in the house where the child had died wouldn't be locked up, which was no, not, of course, a valid reason for the health officers. Avery compounded his crime because, quote, the said Giovanni had gone on to mix with a number of people and particularly in selling fish in the Mercato Vecchio, where he would infect the whole of Florence. And although more details are provided, presumably his motivation had been to support his children so that his son could continue to work, although clearly he hadn't thought through the implications of spreading plague through the rest of the city. 
Now, in these last two examples, the mechanism through which culprits were discovered was through direct observation by health officers. But there were also a surprising number of people who were reported by so-called amici segreti, or, or secret friends, for the removal of goods from a house um, which, where, which had been locked up after the discovery of plague. And these amici segreti were, in fact, provided with a bribe so that um, for reporting people who were um, who were sick or breaking or who, who hadn't been reported who were sick or breaking into houses. This this type of trial, the people and the people, the, the Amici Segreti in particular, talks to the ties of co local community, the neighbourhood watch, people sit, sitting and looking out between behind net curtains if they have net curtains in Italy. In this case, against the occasion of outsiders although being given official encouragement by being awarded a sum of money. But all neighbours also reported themselves, uh, reported the employees of the health board who were, who were accused of breaking the law. Some were accused of stealing from empty houses. There were accusations even against health board officers who'd been bribed to provide a misdiagnosis. So the sick person, especially somebody who's more affluent, could avoid void the lazaretto or, de if dead, burial in the anonymous public plague pit rather than in their parish church. Now, as we've seen, types of offences changed over time. Once the plague really took hold in November, December, there was a rise in the number of people causing fences moving around the streets and breaking out of locked houses. This was a pattern which increased dramatically during the total quarantine of the city when 34,000 people were shut up and fed on a daily basis. Many broke the health board regulations through sheer frustration, either a result of financial crisis or being shut up in cramped apartments with their families or even alone, as in the case of Lucrezia di Francesco Bianchi, who was arrested and put on trial on the 22nd of January 1631. And this is, um, I quote, I live in Via del Campaccio, and about a month ago I returned to the house of Lorenzo the Miller in Via della Selvia, in order not to have to remain alone in my house during the quarantine. I returned to Via del Campaccio, as I've said, but because I didn't know anybody there and I didn't want to remain alone, I went to stay in this house of the miller's wife, who's my friend. So the miller's wife was then brought in because normally test, all, all uh, test, t other people, other witnesses were brought in. So when she was interviewed, it emerged that there was more to the story because Lucrezia had no ordinary profession. She worked as a prostitute and was registered in the health board records as living in Del, del Campaccio. Then to cover herself, the miller's wife provides a very human story for why she'd allowed Lucrezia to live with her. Lucrezia had apparently employed her many times, she says, to allow her to return, and, said, and then she ended up by saying, and anyway, she's a good friend of mine. So this case then talks the problems of solitude and boredom not normally recorded in official uh, records of this period or the interruption of normal economic activity. The fear of moral pollution with prostitutes and also informal networks of sociability and affection between individuals which proved stronger than fear of the law. This is a theme repeated over and over again in these records which reflect the close proximity in which families lived and the bonds which bound members together to provide support to the sick and dying, even in the face of state regulation and fear of their own, uh, of their, of their own fate. 
Even during the quarantine, health board regulations of the city do not appear to prevent it a considerable amount of social activity. So, for example, there's, um, there's a man called Antonio Di Francesco Trabalese who was arrested on the, and questioned on the 7th of, of October. And this is his testimony. Last Wednesday, I was walking towards Porto alla Croce, and when I was close to the gate, a woman called Mona Maria, was, who was locked in her house by the health board, called out of the window and asked me how I was. Come stai? I said to her that I was fine, and while I was talking to her, the police officers came along and took me to prison. When questioned, he declared that actually the window through which Mona Maria talked was quite a long way away, and that he was standing on the other side of the street. So this is an example of a person, Mona Maria, who could potentially infect an acquaintance, since if she was sick, could have breathed out infected air. However, evidently, since he was some distance away, this was not regarded in the final analysis as a risk, and he was released after questioning. Even during the quarantine, health board regulations do appear to have prevented a very considerable amount of activity. There are examples of people climbing over roofs to visit friends, carousing together on balconies and rooftops to while away the time. So in January 1631, three men, Matteo d'Andrea Zaccagnini, Giovanni di Niccolò Fogliari and Giovanni Sarto, who've been arrested because, quote, each day they've climbed over two roofs and the terrace belonging to Yet Beto Iudico, the, the, um, the host, and with the said Salvestro and his sons had played cards. However, worse was to come. On the 22nd of January, they broke down the entrance to a flat belonging to two prostitutes, Maria Domenico and Benedetto Di Francesco, who had been discovered and taken to jail. The place had been locked up because there had been people sick. When interviewed, the protagonist closed ranks. For example, Benedetta replied to questioning, I didn't know how to play the guitar. I didn't hold a guitar on the roof, even though I was on the roof. And Matteo and the man called Giovanni were not on anybody else's roof, they were only on their own. And on the roof of Beto Iudico, I saw nobody at all. So in this case, the people were initially following the regulations of the health board, who was instructed they were taking air on the roofs. By climbing along the roofs, they were, of course, mixing together, which the quarantine had been posed to prevent, exacerbated still further when they broke down the entrance to Benedetta and Maria's flat. The protagonists were indeed punished for leaving a locked-up house. Their occupations compounded their felony, for moral pollution added to the corruption caused by plague. So these very brief extracts from trial records, I think, point to a complex interaction between authority and residents. They raised the whole question about how far rules and regulations were really put into effect. But the picture of a confrontation between authority and subject is too black and white to reflect the complexity of social life and individual reactions to plague. The incidents I've described here derive both from individuals being apprehended by health board officials and being reported by neighbours. Awareness of the dangers of plague spreading and infection was not simply confined to magistrates, but also widespread among the people themselves, for there are, as we've seen, many instances of neighbours reporting each other for breaking regulations. So in this lecture, I've outlined some of the main elements of plague policy in early modern Italian cities, emphasising the central role of isolation and quarantine, and especially the Lazzaretto, or, or um, plague hospital. 
It was regarded by many throughout Europe as a vital part of their strategy. I've shown that in the case of Florence, the system did seem to have worked with over 10,000 people, sick people, uh, sick people carried off to Lazzaretti rather than being shut up in their own houses, as happened, uh, for example, in Britain. Their contacts were quarantined in special centres or at home. Buried of those who died from plague was in extramural plague pits or at the Lazzaretto. Then during the total quarantine of the city, over 34,000 people were kept in their homes for 40 days and fed at daily, on a daily basis at public expense. This then was a massive and expensive operation which had to be justified publicly by the statistics produced by the health board and by medical theory which saw the removal of the sick as vital to prevent them infecting their neighbours with their infected breath. It also gave justifications for a massive policy of social control. But the question still remains of how effective were these measures in reducing mortality. Certainly isolation and quarantine were useful instruments for the government, literally to keep the poor in their place, to avoid panic and enable them to provide centralised medical treatment. But even though Florence may have had a relatively low mortality in 1631, how far can we actually attribute this to the Lazzaretto and quarantine when other cities in Italy, in, with exactly the same plague measures, had very much higher death rates. Furthermore, given the grim realities within the Lazzaretto, to which we've alluded, did the very concentration of those sick from plague lead to higher mortality, especially among the medical and nursing personnel, and among those poor individuals being carted off there with fever rather than plague? This explains Dr. Rigi's comment that, quote, everybody feared the Lazzaretto and burial there, more than death itself. It's also worth asking how far the massive regulation of this apparently efficient public system was actually enforced, given the trial records I've alluded to, reflecting considerable resistance to the health board regulations. More broadly, we've seen that the measures adopted during the second plague and pandemic of inspection, isolation and quarantine, were also at the heart of measures adopted during the third plague pandemic. But the story continues today with similar themes characterising reactions to epidemics as governments battle with the spread of not just disease, but fear and panic, especially in the age of social media. Central to government policy are also economic decisions which have to be taken given the threat to national and international trade and commerce, and thus, of course, the financial implications for states in establishing public health policies. All this raises the age-old themes of threats to personal liberty with the imposition of strict regulations. We've seen from the Florentine evidence that many citizens resented restrictions on their life, but evidence from infractions of the law could also be taken by the authorities as further justifications that the plague was caused by the poor. Physicians and health officers alike saw them as not just the carriers of plague, but through their poor diet and conditions in which they live, making the plague worse. Which leads us to the prostitute Maria Di Menico, whose actions both in breaking out of a sealed house and plying a trade increased both physical and moral corruption in the city and encouraged her clients to carouse at a time when it was seen as the populace's duty to obey the law for the common good and to lead a proper Christian life because it's important to remember that ultimately plague was believed to have been caused by God's wrath punishing the sins of mankind. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. 
This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.